Welcome to the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Professor Andrew Menti. Now, Professor Menti is has a PhD in epidemiology from the University of Toronto. He's uh, done his postdoc work in cardiovascular epidemiology from McMaster University, and he's an associate professor of health research methods at McMaster University. And most recently, he was one of the co-investigators on the lifestyle and the nutritional side of the PURE study. Now, PURE is this enormous study over five continents, 18 different countries, over 135,000 different individuals that has had some pretty profound uh, research evidence as it comes to saturated fats, cholesterol, fat in general, and their implication on overall mortality. It has uh, a number of data on salt intake and mortality, and a lot of it is contrary to conventional wisdom and guidelines. Now, all that being said, this is an epidemiological study, and we definitely talk about the strengths and benefits of epidemiology versus randomized controlled trial, and he has a good perspective on how we really sort of need both to further research and affect policy. So there's a lot of data here going over the PURE study, and um, it has some pretty profound impacts on, on the way we should make recommendations and how we should see older recommendations and their falling. So uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Professor Andrew Menti and learn a lot about the PURE study um, and understand how we can use that data in our daily lives. Professor Andrew Menti, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Oh, pleasure to be here. Now you have, have really become known as the PURE guy because of the PURE study and all the all the data that's come out of that and how that's impacted how we see salt, how we see fat and carbohydrates, and how we see lipid biomarkers, three huge concepts that we've kind of been misled on. Um, so this has been pretty revolutionary data that you've come up with. Yes. Well, uh, the unique part about PURE is that it's a large uh, prospective uh, epidemiological study, but it's also a global study. So it covers five continents of the world. And as a result, we captured broad patterns of diet globally from a, across a broad range of intake, both very low levels and very high levels of individual nutrients and foods and dietary patterns. That's important because that allows us to sh assess shapes of relationships between dietary variables and health outcomes, which has never been characterized before with any high degree of, of statistical precision. Yeah, it's such an interesting part when you talk about nutritional research, and it is complicated, let's be honest. It's very hard to do. When you talk about a randomized controlled trial, an observational study, a study in one type of population or a study in a large swath of, of a population, and they each have their, their benefits and their, and their drawbacks. Um, so when you when you look at analyzing the data from the PURE study, tell us what you think some of the strengths and weaknesses are in that type of a study. Sure. Uh, obviously, uh, observational studies, uh, we assess relationships or associations between variables, uh, diet and uh, health outcomes. And uh, so we, uh, we don't uh, you don't prove causation with any one observational study, but what you do is you look for a coherent pattern of uh, information from observational studies, both looking at uh, foods or nutrients versus intermediate risk markers for cardiovascular disease and actual outcomes. Uh, with, uh, of course, with ra large randomized controlled trials, we can better assess uh, causative effects. The problem with large randomized trials is that they're very difficult to conduct with diet. 
And uh, it's very difficult for people to sustain a particular diet for a long term. And so there's a challenge there. On the other hand, when you have weak effects, it's harder to assess uh, weak effects in observational studies because you don't know if, if uh, the, re- the result is uh, true or due to residual confounding. So uh, we tend to think of different designs as complementing one another. So not one design being uh, the best uh, considering feasibility and also uh, you know, uh, what is the, the, the cleanest design, but using different designs complementary to one another and capitalizing on the strengths of each is the ideal way to go forward. Yeah, and then the harder question is how to take the data you have and incorporate it into guidelines for the entire country or the entire world to try and follow. And when is that data strong enough to support a statement that this is the way to eat? And so far, it seems like we've been a little misled in that in that stance, haven't we? Yes, absolutely. So we take the issue with uh, fats and, and carbohydrates, for instance. So uh, the current uh, dietary guidelines go back, obviously, to work that was conducted in the 50s that eventually led to the adoption of a low-fat diet, and uh, which we know it really hasn't panned out. And populations have gotten, uh, you know, fatter, and and uh, diabetes rates tripled coinciding with the introduction of the, of the guidelines. So um, our, our data suggests that um, the conventional way of thinking of diet, focusing on higher intake of carbohydrates, may actually backfire, which supports what has actually happened. And, um, and so higher carb intake, and remember many parts of the world, they consume very high amounts of carbohydrates, low and middle income countries, and largely it's refined carbohydrates and added sugar. And uh, we find that um, higher carbohydrate is related to more cardiovascular events and mortality, particularly all-cause mortality. Whereas for fats, we see the opposite. We see higher fat intake related to lower risk of mortality and saturated fat related to lower risk of stroke. So this kind of challenges uh, conventional uh, wisdom on uh, diet, but it is consistent with the trials because you look at the randomized trials that replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat they haven't really panned out, uh, largely uh, neutral effects. And other observational studies, too, have shown neutrality, looking at relationship of saturated fat with clinical outcomes. So our findings, if anything, are supportive of previous studies. Yeah, so let's jump into the study a little bit. So you mentioned uh, 18 countries, uh, five different continents, over 135,000 individuals. And what was the time frame that you followed them? Yeah, so for our uh, papers that came out last year in The Lancet, uh, it was eight years of follow-up. Eight years. Yes. This year we had a paper that came out on dairy. It was nine years of follow-up because we have uh, the follow-up is ongoing and Pure is still doing the follow-up and we hope to follow up people for at least another five to 10 years. Okay. So, yeah. And so you mentioned the data on the saturated fats um, and carbohydrates. So with a higher carbohydrate diet starting at 68% of the calories, there was an increased risk of all-cause mortality. Now, we need to talk about hazard ratios, though, because you know we're quick to point out that smoking with a hazard ratio of three and a half is is a dramatic change. Yes. The red meat leading to colon cancer at 1.17 is is a, a small hazard ratio. So the hazard ratio here was small at 1.17 and 1.28. Um, so how do you how do you help us interpret that um, in terms of? It was an effect because of how many patients there were, but yet the hazard ratio was small, and it's sort of against what the guidelines say. So how do you incorporate all that into um, how we should interpret that data? Well, uh, dietary effects are weak. If you look at uh, the collective literature, whether it's nutrients or foods, uh, largely effects are weak uh, up to the degree of like a 10% 
change in risk, uh, relative risk change. So that's a very weak effect. Unlike smoking, where you see a 20-fold increase in risk of smoking versus lung cancer, for instance. So that's a challenge with, uh, with diet and studying diet in observational studies. And so, um, but if anything, are, you, look at, you look at the data of other uh, cohort studies, um, and if you focus on the studies that looked at carbohydrates versus mortality as a percent of energy, you also there see uh, that higher carb intake shows an increase in the risk of mortality. Now, some studies have looked at calculated diet scores or carbohydrate scores. And so what goes into that is different coding of what are uh, carbohydrate foods. And so you can select almost any foods you want to go into a carbohydrate score and you'll get different results. But, it, the, but the studies that look at percent of energy from carbs, you see a, a positive association with mortality. Now, there aren't that many free-living populations with very low carbohydrate intake. So don't misread me. I'm not saying that going as low as possible would be beneficial because that has yet to be demonstrated. But certainly it appears that there's a, a, an optimal range between 50 to 55% of energy from carbs that, that appears to be associated with lowest risk. At the low end, it's a little more murky. We really don't know. Yeah. And then, and then the problem comes in of the quality of the food that you're eating. Um, says there's there's really no um, control for the quality of carbs because it's free living people. So like you said, in in some of the poor countries, uh, underdeveloped countries, it's going to be a lot of refined carbohydrates and refined grains. So not a surprise that the higher level of carbohydrates increased mortality risk. Now, what maybe was a surprise that the higher level of fat intake decreased mortality risk. I think that's where the real headline is that that is so counter to what we're being told. And now you broke that up into monounsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats, and saturated fats in terms of their mortality risk. So tell us how those varied. Yeah. So you look at the, first of all, each individual type of fat, saturated, mono, and polyunsaturated, were associated with lower risk of mortality. Uh, so they all directionally went toward protection. Now, with looking at saturated fat, we found, because remember, we're covering low and middle income countries here, where saturated fat in many parts of the world is very low. And so saturated fat going up to about 13% of energy was associated with lower risk of mortality. Now, um, uh, what this suggests is that when you go to low levels below 10% and further, do you actually see an increase in mortality, which is actually what the guidelines recommend to go to those lower levels. Now, we are not saying that our data supports consuming 20 or 25% of energy from saturated fat, only because that's not captured by the natural distribution of saturated fat in the population, in free living populations. So, uh, and certainly uh, societies, some societies in Europe used to consume uh, three to four decades ago much higher amounts of saturated fat. So uh, our data is not capturing that high level uh, of saturated fat. But up to about 13 or 14% of energy, we see a lower risk of mortality compared to people consuming lower amounts of saturated fat. Now, interestingly, the mortality also for fat in general and saturated fat, it was neutral for cardiovascular mortality and beneficial for all-cause and non-cardiovascular mortality. I mean, is that one other surprise or um, is that sort of what you would expect to see? Well, we look at the randomized trials. We look at the uh, Crockett Review by Hooper in 2015 of randomized trials uh, where they replaced saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat, again, a direct test of the diet-heart hypothesis. The summary estimates were neutral. So if anything, our results are consistent with that. The Women's Health Initiative trial, which compared a low-fat diet to a higher-fat diet, 
again, found no significant uh, change in risk for cardiovascular events and, and, and mortality. So, uh, and, and so that was another large study, cost half a billion dollars. So <laughs> if anything, our, our results are consistent with that. Now, <clears throat> if you look at cardiovascular disease mortality and non-cardiovascular mortality, directionally, we did see uh, that different types of fats were beneficial, although it wasn't statistically significant, but directionally. And, uh, and carbs directionally was harmful versus, versus cardiovascular death and non-cardiovascular death. It was the non-fatal events where it was largely neutral. I see. Now, were you able to break down the non-cardiovascular deaths anymore? Was it cancer? Was it infection or the, the various different causes? Well, the main non-CBD causes right now in Pure are cancer and respiratory mortality. Mm -hmm. So those two, and those were the main drivers of it. Now, um, uh, of course, Pure is a large cohort that's still ongoing. And, and so we're following people up. We don't have enough event rates right now to characterize cancer or respiratory events alone or individual types of cancer. But as the cohort gets older, the event rates will, will pick up and it will have more events. So if we, that's why it's very important and pure to do the follow-up over the next 10 years, then we can assess individual types of cancer and diet. Right. Right. Now, now with a study like this that goes against our guidelines and goes against what you can say the, the most common dogma is now, would you say this is strong enough evidence to say things have to change now? Or do you think this is sort of one blip on the screen and we need more to come in order to um, affect policy and make a change? Well, I say collectively, looking at our data and other studies as well, we could relax a bit on the, the threshold for saturated fat. And given the population on average in the U.S., for instance, the average intake of saturated fat is about 12% of energy. So it's only slightly above the WHO recommendation of 10%. So it's not like we have a saturated fat emergency. So I would say that's fine. What we're consuming now is fine. We could even consume a little bit more. We're not saying you consume, consume unlimited amounts because we need data for that still. But what we consume now appears to be right, and we don't have to put in stringent cutoffs to get people to lower their saturated fat. Yeah. Yeah. Now, also... <clears throat> there's concern about, um, like we talked about earlier, data quality. So was this mostly from food frequency questionnaires um, that people filled out and how often were they filling that out? And is there any concern of reliability for that? Yes. So the food frequency questionnaires were uh, extensively validated and developed specifically for each region. And they were long food frequency questionnaires. So capture detailed aspects of diet. So, uh, so for instance, we have 150 items measuring diet, diet in a particular population. So that's a, a very uh, in-depth analysis into the diet. Now, the downside with food frequency questionnaires, of course, is random measurement error. And, uh, and so that adds noise, but that more di dilutes associations toward the null. And that, and that, that is a factor in every um, epidemiological study. So, um, uh, you know, it is the best tool we have at the moment for large epidemiological studies. And, uh, and, and that's what we use. Uh, again, that's why I say complementing it with randomized trials, focusing on risk markers uh, would be uh, optimal. Uh, the, so the major strength, however, is the fact that we cover, again, a broad range of intake across different um, uh, different parts of the world. Again, characterizing those uh, extreme ranges as much as they're represented by human consumption. And that's really where, where the advantage of Pure is. Yeah, very good. Now, you mentioned um, comparing the trials to randomized trials using risk markers. And that's one of the parts of, of Pure that I really enjoyed most um, was looking at the risk markers. So you looked at, um, as they increased carbs, their LDL decreased, and so did their HDL. 
and their triglyceride to HDL ratio increased and their ApoB went down a little bit. So their ApoB to ApoA ratio um, also went down. Yeah. So then you looked at outcome data in terms of what these markers all meant. And what did you find in terms of the difference between LDL cholesterol, the ApoB to ApoA? What, share that data with us. Yeah, so uh, as you said, uh, looking at the risk markers, saturated fat had uh, an increase in, in LDL with higher saturated fat, but uh, the effects on the other lipid markers were largely beneficial. So, the, so when you look at the ratio of total cholesterol to HDL, which is a stronger risk marker of future cardiovascular disease, that's just a potential beneficial effect because the ratio went down. And we know that that risk marker is a better predictor of future events. And then when you look at ApoBA to ApoA, which remember in interheart and interstroke, two large international studies, was the strongest lipid predictor of heart attacks and stroke, we found that the ratio goes down with higher saturated fat, which again suggests a beneficial effect since that is the strongest risk marker, and that goes down with higher saturated fat. And then what we did is we modeled, we said, okay, assuming we don't have any data on clinical events, let's model and use the, the lipid markers to project what the effects of diet on cardiovascular risk would be. And then when we did that, we modeled using LDL, and we found that positive association, as you would expect. After all, saturated fat is positively associated with LDL. And then, but, uh, but then when we... When we map that versus actual events, we, we found that LDL was a poor predictive marker of future events when you look at the observed associations. On the other hand, ApoB to ApoA ratio was much better at projecting the effects of diet on health outcomes. So this suggests that we fo if we focus on LDL, we may be largely misinforming diet for populations. ApoB to ApoA ratio, which is a measure of small, dense LDL particles that are more atherogenic than LDL, appears to be the much better uh, predictive marker uh, to project the effects of diet on health outcomes. Are you able to quantify that to give us some sense like how much better, how, my, how much more associated it was, or is that data sort of hard to quantify that way? Well, what we did is we, uh, we calculated the, the I-square value, which generally assesses uh, the degree to which uh, the, uh, the actual estimates agree with one another. And so when you, when you calculate that statistic, you see that the estimates from the, from the APOA to APOA ratio projected estimates versus the actual observed estimates uh, agreed, and there was good, good agreement. Whereas with LDL, they diverged in opposite yeah. directions. So we, the projected estimates show an increase in risk, whereas the actual effects of saturated fat on the events go down slightly. So they diverge in different directions, which suggests that LDL is not very good for projecting dietary effects. It may be very good for projecting statin effects on health outcomes, but not for diet. Wow, that, that's so worth repeating that the, the projected effect would be that the risk would go up and the observed effect was that it actually went down. That that's it was, right. It was completely discordant. And that calls into question every single dietary study that's looked at LDL because the presumption is if the LDL level goes down, this diet is therefore beneficial and protective. And I, you really don't have to look any further than the, the sort of the older studies that looked at um, giving polyunsaturated fatty acid oils, seed oils, which showed LDL went down. And that's what was publicized. But then a reexamination of the data showed mortality actually went up 
but that's not been talked about very much. So my hope is that this study would cause just a huge snowball effect of people realizing that LDLC is not the marker we should be following. Yet I, I don't feel like I've heard enough about that in the media and in, and in the scientific circles. Is that just because old dogma dies hard and people aren't ready to hear it? Why, why do you think that's the case? Yes. Well, you know, LDL is, is considered by the um, you know, conventional way of thinking of as an infallible marker. Right. And, and so people think in a very reductionist way, many scientists. So they figured that if anything that adversely affects LDL, it must be harmful. And you could ignore all the other biomarkers. But diet is much more complicated than that. So you take foods, natural sources of saturated fat that contain saturated fat, but they also contain monounsaturated fat. They also contain protein. They contain vitamin Bs, including B12. They, they, can, they contain uh, zinc and magnesium. So uh, this is all thrown out. And, and we treat food almost like it's a single nutrient saturated fat that's infused into our veins. And, and <laughs> that's, that's right. used to project the effects. And it really is an absurd way of thinking if you really think about it deeply. And so for diet, we have to think much more multidimensionally than that. Absolutely. I think that's a great statement because we do like reductionist thinking. We do like to try and make things overly simplistic. And this is the mess we get into yes. when we do that. You know, I know your your study did not specifically look at a low-carb or a ketogenic diet, but in those circles, the main concern is what about the LDL? The LDL goes up and that's, and that's why doctors are hesitant to prescribe it. That's why uh, a number of guidelines will not include it because of that concern. And yet looking at this data, if the ApoB to ApoA ratio stays the same or gets better, it shouldn't matter what the LDL does. So I think that's that's why this evidence is so powerful and we need to be seeing this from the rooftops more to say this, we need to reevaluate dietary changes and their effects on cholesterol. And you're, important, and you're quick to point that out. It may not be the same for drugs. It may not be the same for genetics, but for dietary changes, that's what we need to look at. Absolutely, yes. And, and, and we need to study uh, a, a much wider range. So you look at the pure study because the level of, of carbohydrates and fats only cover a particular range. That's where the randomized trials are needed, like Verda from the work uh, that Dr. Hallberg is doing to capture the, the lower end of the carb distribution. And so that it's a very important to look at that to see what the effects on the risk markers are, are for very low carb intake, which uh, Pure ca does not capture it, because it's largely representing parts of the world that consume from moderate to high carbs. So that's why Sarah's work is very important. Right, and and since you brought up Sarah's work at Verta Health, you know, the, at their one-year data mark, the LDLC went up by about 10% with no change in their ApoB and their HDL went up. So their ApoB to ApoA ratio improved. That's right. And so based on this, that is a net benefit for, for mortality. And that's, that's right. what we care about. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, so fascinating. I, the, the tide is, is changing, maybe a little too slowly, but it, it is certainly changing. Yes. Um, now the study also had other aspects to it. So the next one was, um, increasing fruit, vegetable, and legume consumption decreased mortality, starting at three servings per day, with really no difference between the three and eight servings per day. Now, I'm curious about that because fruits, vegetables, legumes, they frequently do get bunched together. Um, and I think it's a sign of somebody maybe being a little more health conscious because that's what we're told is the healthy way of eating. But was there any parsing out individually of how vegetables are different than fruits and different than legumes individually? Yes, absolutely. So the beneficial effect was largely driven by uh, fresh fruit 
uh, raw vegetables and legumes. It's the cooked vegetables, when you put that in, into, the, in, into the equation, that's when you start to, to drown out the, the beneficial effect. Interesting. Yes. So if you look at versus CBD and also looking versus mortality, uh, fruit, raw vegetables, and legumes were beneficial. But when you look at cooked vegetables, that's when you see um, it, uh, no effect on CBD and maybe even directionally, maybe even a harmful effect. So maybe cooking methods and, and what we uh, add to food when, while we're cooking may be an important factor. Yeah. And, yeah so. I wonder if that's because they're cooking in omega-6 seed oils or they're cooking in like heavy sugary sauces or something. It's possible. It, it certainly makes you wonder because that's not what I would expect. So of course everybody's got their bias. When you see yes. something you don't expect, you want to find out what makes it wrong, right? And that's, that's right. part of the, the trouble we get into and I need to catch myself for doing that. Because interesting, with increased fruit intake, if somebody was diabetic or um, had metabolic disease, you would think that would have a deleterious effect. But over the whole sample, fruit intake was beneficial. Yes. Well, we, we have to also remember that pure uh, represents general populations of, yeah. of uh, people living in communities. So it, it may very well be different for diabetics. Diabetics may need to restrict the very high sugary or high GI type of fruit uh, in their diet. But yeah. for general populations, uh, fruit was largely beneficial. So I guess it, it, it depends on uh, the, the the population that you're studying in diabetics right. it may be different. Yeah, and I think that's important to, to point out for the for the general population. Fruit, vegetables, legumes can certainly be part of a very healthy diet, and this prove that. But in certain yes. populations, that's where you need to measure their effects specifically on that individual. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and then the other part of the study was salt. So salt and salt and saturated fats have to be the two most misunderstood and misrepresented components of our food intake. What you saw from a salt in, intake was that um, a higher risk below three grams of sodium and a higher risk at above six grams of sodium. So first, before we get into the details, tell me the difference between grams of sodium and grams of salt, just so we're all speaking the same language here. Yes. So uh, one gram of sodium is 2.5 grams of uh, table salt. Uh, so uh, so the WHO recommend, recommendation is two grams of sodium, which is five grams of table salt or one teaspoon. One table. teaspoon. One teaspoon. Tiny amount. Yes. Very difficult for most people to, cons to consume in the short term, let alone the long term. And that's the, the, the recommendation. Yeah. So the recommendation, I think, was less than 2.4 grams or is it less than 2 grams? Yeah. Now, yeah. it depends on the guidelines. WHO is 2 grams. Uh, some, uh, you know, the U.S. dietary guidelines, 2.4. Uh, for high-risk population, the American Heart Association recommends less than 1.5 grams per day, right. which is only 0.7 teaspoons of salt per day, very low amount. And there was, there was a study showing only less than 3% of the population actually adhered to the less than 2 grams per day. Correct. And then when you adjust for random error, it's uh, it was below, well below 1%. Oh, yes. And then when you look at people who meet the sodium and potassium recommendation, it's only 0.001 percent of the population meets that recommend. In other words, what we currently recommend is what nobody eats. Right. And this completely seems undoable. Yeah. So where did this recommendation come from? Well, the uh, the, the, the entire field is, is uh, hinges on an assumed benefit considering the effect of sodium and blood pressure. Right. So given that sodium is associated with higher blood pressure, it's assumed that this will translate into uh, a cardiovascular benefit if we lower sodium. Now, of course, this assumes that sodium affects only blood pressure and has no other effects on any bi other biological systems in the body. But because sodium is an essential nutrient, 
it doesn't quite work out that way. So uh, we, we agree that at high levels, you get toxicity, an increase in blood pressure, but at low levels, you get deficiency. And so what that does is it activates certain mechanisms that are built into our bodies since salt is, is an essential nutrient. So you get, you get renin angiotensin system activation at low levels. And this has been shown repeatedly in intervention trials. And so you have dual competing mechanisms, which is consistent with an essential nutrient. Toxicity at high levels, deficiency at low levels, sweet spot in the middle. And our findings reaffirm that, and other studies as well reaffirm that. There's not one single study ever that has shown that low sodium at currently recommended levels is better than average sodium in that th sweet spot of three to, to five grams per day versus cardiovascular events and mortality. High levels above five grams per day, certainly, we should get those populations down to moderate levels, but there's absolutely no evidence to support low levels versus moderate levels. And yet that's what we currently recommend, again, based on an assumed benefit based looking at blood pressure. Right, an assumed benefit, and a lot of people will quote the DASH study, yes. thinking that this was sort of the end-all, mm. be-all conclusive study on salt intake, that the DASH study really was the moving force to inform the guidelines. But tell, tell us a little bit about the DASH study and maybe why that wasn't such a good idea to use that to base our guidelines. Well, the DASH study was a proof of concept study. It was an excellent study uh, in that it was a randomized trial and people were provided the food during a 30-day period. So it was a feeding study. Uh, and uh, so it was, it was an excellent study in, in its own right in that way. However, the problem is how we interpret the data from PURE to, uh, from, or sorry, from DASH, how we interpret the data from DASH to make dietary recommendations for cardiovascular disease prevention. Because there are a number of limitations we have to point out. Uh, one is that um, we have to remember that this was largely a salt-sensitive uh, group of people, uh, a lot of hypertensives and prehypertensives. And uh, we also need to remember that potassium intake was, was low at, at baseline. So when you put someone on a very low potassium diet, lowering or changing their blood pressure will result in changes in, uh, changing their sodium will result in changes in blood pressure. But when you give people higher amounts of potassium to put them on an all around healthy diet, like the DASH diet that contains uh, many of high potassium foods, then, then the effects of sodium will be largely mitigated. So, and that's what DASH found, that when you we consume a low potassium diet, you see large changes in blood pressure which doesn't surprise really anyone when right. given that. But when you give them the, the high potassium diet, then sodium becomes less important. And, uh, and so, uh, and the important point is DASH is only 30 days. So, we, so you look at long-term effects, we need studies with longer follow-up to look at the effects of, in, the, in the long-term. So we, uh, some studies like TOPE have looked at longer-term follow-up uh, TOPE originally was designed to look at blood pressure, so people were followed up for a period of 36 months. But what TOPE found was that people initially, uh, they, they never reached the 1.8 gram per day target. They lowered their sodium a little bit to down to 2.5 grams per day, but then by around a year, they, they migrated back to their original sodium intake. And, uh, and so even though they follow people up over time, uh, we don't even know what people were eating during the course of the extended follow-up, but there's every reason to believe they were not even following the low sodium recommendation. So we really don't have any data from randomized trials. So we have to look at the, the data on long-term clinical events, and that's where the cohort studies come into play. And there's consistency across a dozen cohort studies showing low sodium is either um, associated with harm versus moderate sodium, or there's no, ch there's no change in risk. But no study suggesting 
or showing a lower risk with low sodium compared to average intake. Yeah, and that's what's so frustrating about this whole concept is that it's one thing to make a recommendation that has a neutral effect. It's another thing to make an official recommendation that actually might put you in harm's way. And that's what this seems to suggest. And that's what happened with the carbohydrate recommendation that sparked our diabetes and obesity crisis. And that's what's happening with salt as well. The official recommendation based on your study says you should be following a sodium intake that is going to worsen your health. Why is there not a public outcry about this? I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah. So, you know, science works that way in that uh, when, when we have a position for a long time, change takes time. And yeah. it's always been like that. And so this is no different. And so eventually in the long term, the truth uh, does win out. Uh, and so the only thing we can do is just keep publishing our science and, uh, and, and the truth eventually uh, works itself out. Yeah. The other important point I want to go back to about the DASH trial that we don't hear much about is the difference between the high and low sodium diets, or sorry, high and low potassium diets and how that affected blood pressure response to sodium. That's definitely worth repeating. So on the low potassium diet, there was a larger blood pressure effect with yes. increasing sodium. On the higher potassium diet, there was essentially no blood pressure impact on increasing sodium or a very that's, small amount. That's correct, yes. Now, when we say, okay, well, what are examples of low and high potassium diets? When I think of a high potassium diet, I think of fresh vegetables. When I think of a low potassium diet, I think of potato chips and pretzels and, and packaged foods. And so I think where the salt is coming from and what type of diet you're having clearly makes a huge impact. So as this applies to the low-carb community, if someone's eating their broccoli and their cauliflower and their spinach and they're putting their Himalayan sea salt on it and having it with their you know, chicken, meat, fish, eggs, and cheese, that's a perfectly reasonable diet where you can be having the higher end of sodium um, and based on the DASH study, it would say it would have no effect. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. So you have yeah you you also you need to consider the overall pattern of the diet, which is what you're saying. Yeah. So that that needs to be taken into account as well. So it's not only necessarily a potassium effect, but also potassium is a marker of the quality of the diet. So if if you have a higher potassium diet, you're consuming an all around balanced, healthy diet with plenty of foods containing high in potassium, fruits, vegetables, dairy, and nuts and seeds, for instance, all are potassium foods. So we have to consider within the context of the dietary pattern. And, and DASH is important in that respect because it shows that um, salt sensitivity is not an immutable trait. You can mitigate it uh, by eating an all-around healthy diet. And when you do that, we find that salt becomes less important. So the message is just concentrate on consuming an all-around healthy diet and you don't need to worry. be worried about individual nutrients like salt and saturated fat. And the other component about salt I wanted to bring up was you also broke it down between those with hypertension and those without hypertension. And there was a difference between the low end and the high end. Um, so for both groups, whether you had hypertension or not, the risk increased at the low end of sodium intake below three grams. But at the higher end, if you didn't have hypertension, then that risk was mitigated. The risk did not go up as much, right? So would that suggest there may not be much of an upper limit if you don't already have hypertension? That, that's right. That's what that data suggests. Uh, and so if you don't have hypertension, uh, there's no increase in risk at the, even at the high end. So, uh, you know, so if we, if, if we take a cautious approach, we'd say, well, you know, still, let's aim to get people in the, in the middle, which is where most people are anyway. 
right? Uh, and so, uh, but the people who are hypertensives, we did see an increased risk. So this would suggest that rather than a population-wide strategy, best we target people with hypertension who also consume high amounts of sodium exceeding five grams per day and get them down to moderate levels. At the low end, what's interesting, we see an increased risk, as you said, irrespective of blood pressure. So whether you have high blood pressure or normal blood pressure, you still see an increased risk at the low end versus clinical events, cardiovascular disease and mortality. And what that suggests is another mechanism is at play here. And again, consistent with other data showing activation of the renin angiotensin system, which we know is vascular damaging. And you get exponential rises in these hormones with low levels of sodium, and therefore you see the consistent results across different uh, subpopulations. It's been shown repeatedly in people with hypertension and without hypertension, people with diabetes and without diabetes, and people with vascular disease and without vascular disease. It's a consistent finding. How about congestive heart failure? You aware of the data on that? So uh, congestive heart failure, there, uh, there was one study that, looking at data from the Epic Norfolk that found in healthy people there was a lower risk of heart failure uh, with moderate sodium compared to low sodium. So even versus heart failure as a primary outcome, in healthy people, we see a beneficial effect with moderate sodium rather than with low sodium. Um, and looking at heart failure patients, there are some trials that are ongoing right now looking at uh, low sodium versus average sodium in heart failure patients. So we'll have to see what the results are for that. Yeah, because I think it's fairly well accepted that uh, heart failure exacerbations and hospitalizations increase with increased sodium intake in severe, poorly controlled heart failure patients. Um, I'd have to re-examine whether it's a mortality effect or not, or more of a symptom and, and hospitalization effect. And then at, at what levels you break that down, at what level of renal angiotensin activation, because most of these people are in ACE inhibitors or ARBs, which are renal angiotensin blockers. There's definitely a lot of other factors to in, in incorporate for the heart failure patient. Yeah, that's right. That's the, the one of the bigger challenges with the heart failure patients is that, that they're on all these uh, yeah. different medications. So, uh, you know, so we I think we need more uh, data on uh, w what the effects are for heart failure. Certainly, there's compelling data that, again, high amounts of sodium exceeding five grams per day is, is certainly harmful. Right. So the question is whether very low amounts is better than moderate levels. Really, that's the, the research question, and we need more data on that. Right. Yes. Right. Well, this has been a great discussion of the PURE study. And I mean, for, for one study to upend our common wisdom in dietary guidelines for saturated fat, for salt, and for lipid biomarkers is pretty remarkable. So I think you, you did a great job with the study and, and representing the results. And I, and I hope there's more to come. I mean, you, you sort of said there is, it's ongoing and there's more data coming. When can we expect the next installment, do you know? Yeah, so right now we're working on our um, other dietary papers, papers. So obviously we collected using a long food frequency questionnaire. Uh, we're now looking at all the different types of foods versus cardiovascular events yeah, and mortality. So we want to spend the next two years to publish all these papers. And then also when looking at uh, the dietary pattern as a whole, and that would be a key paper as well. So this is what we want to publish in the, in the next uh, year or two. And also we'll do more dietary assessments during follow-up. And that also helps improve the precision and, and accuracy of the estimates of diet. And, uh, and then continue the follow-up as much as we can to look at effects on uh, less studied outcomes like cancers and, and respiratory events and infectious uh, disease as well. Great. Great. Well, if people want to learn more about you and more about the PURE study, where can you direct them to go? 
Uh, well, there, there's, uh, there's a website online. Uh, if you go to uh, phri.ca, uh, there, there's a link that takes you to the uh, Pure Study. If you want to read up more on it, it's there. Great. Great. Well, Professor Andrew Menti, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure.